Have you ever referred to yourself in the third person? (laughs) If you do it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me give you a picture here. Imagine that we go to lunch, and we're sitting there at the table, and in the course of our conversation, I start saying things like this. Hey, have you ever played backgammon with Dow? Yeah. Hey, you know that Dow, he, he makes a nice church bulletin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, you've never had chocolate cobbler until you've had Dow's chocolate cobbler. Oh, yeah. Man, Dow, he, he likes his chicken spicy. Have you ever, you ever been with someone who talks to themselves in the third person? Little children, when they are very young, are not able to really grasp the concept of pronouns. And so they will often talk about themselves in the third person because they haven't quite figured it all out. Elmo does it. Jimmy did it in prime time. Dwayne the Rock Johnson, he does it in the wrestling world. Even presidential candidates do it. Now just think about what I just said. Little children, puppets, sitcom characters, professional wrestlers, presidential candidates. There's one group that just shouldn't be in that list, right? There is something a little creepy about talking in the third person. Interestingly, though, there are some researchers that believe that talking to yourself or referring to yourself in the third person is actually good for you. The idea is that it creates some distance between you and what's going on, and that distance allows you to to focus and to have a little more drive with what you're doing. It can actually make you more successful, they say. Very closely to referring to yourself in the third person is also just plain talking to yourself, you know, muttering to yourself, mumbling under your breath, whispering to the mirror in the morning. You know, we all have these moments where we kind of talk to ourselves. This too has been associated as a healthy habit. It might actually help you to to be more motivated and to keep you more focused, to help you think about what you're actually doing. One self-talk researcher put it this way. What happens with self-talk is you stimulate your action, direct your action, and evaluate your action. I mean, that kind of makes it sound like if you will do a little more talking to yourself, you'll, you'll turn into an action figure. Look, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's talking to himself, man. That's who that is right there. Talking to yourself or talking to yourself or referring to yourself in the third person, they both have their creepy side. It's a little bit strange. But the truth is, there is some good, even some spiritual good, that could happen from these two things. After all, Christianity is kind of an action verb. Jesus has called us to believe and follow. He's called us to action. So, how can we stimulate our Christian action? How can we direct our Christian action? How can we evaluate and and motivate our Christian action? Well, King David is going to help us answer those questions. And he says that it might involve a little bit of talking to yourself and maybe even talking about yourself in the third person. What does he have to say? Listen to Psalm 19, verse 14. David writes, Let the words of my mouth. Most of the time when we think of the words of our mouth, we're we're thinking of what we say to other people. 
the morning greetings we may give our family, the, the jokes we may tell at work, the, the what-ups that we throw out at school, the, the cheers that we throw out to our team, maybe even the thank yous that we give the waiter or the waitress in the restaurant. Those words, though, before they come out of our mouths, they, they come from somewhere else. They don't just start from our mouths. Actually, your words begin in your mind. Really, they begin in your heart. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. Whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. When I eat bacon, as I did last night and cooked it and it was wonderful, when I eat bacon, it doesn't go from my mouth to my esophagus to my heart. It goes from my mouth to my esophagus to my stomach. That's just how it works. Now, a really nice, faithful cardiologist might tell me that technically that bacon is going to my heart, indirectly at least, in maybe some unhealthy ways, but it doesn't go directly to my heart. Even a small child who's only seen one episode of Slim Goodbody knows that the food does not go directly from your mouth to your esophagus to your heart. It goes to your stomach. What Jesus is doing is he's using a very simple word picture to help us see a a deeper truth about the words that we use and the actions that we have in life. He goes on to say this in Mark 7, verse 20. That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. So lust, stealing, murder, idolatry, jealousy, adultery, vulgar language, obscene gestures, road rage, bullying, manipulating, gossip. All of these things are not things that the devil makes you do. Jesus says you do them all on your own. According to what Jesus says, you do these things because in that moment you are cherishing those things more than you cherish the grace and the love and the mercy of God. Your words and your actions, they are a reflection of your heart. Now, we do have influences, though. Our parents might influence us. Our our friends might influence us. TV, movies, video games, magazines, the Internet, the rappers on Laffy Taffy. I mean, just about anything can influence us on any given day. But influencing is different than reflecting. See, all those influences that come into our life, we know that they're there. We see them, we hear them, we realize we're there. And we have the ability to look and discern and filter out and decide which influences get to stay and which ones have to go. See, every influence that comes in to our mind, every influence that comes into our lives, we're either going to give it a hotel stay, or we're going to give it a 12-month lease, or we're going to give it a piece of land so it can build its dream house in our heart. And so the question is, What is your neighborhood like? What kind of land have you given out? Who is in the neighborhood of your heart? How much land does lust and stealing and murder and adultery and jealousy and greed and arrogance and pride and and vulgar language and obscene gestures and road rage and, and gossip and bullying and manipulating, how much land do those things have in your heart? And maybe on the flip side, how much land has been given to love and joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. How much land do those things have? 
See, the way we talk is a reflection. The words that we use, they are reflections of who has gotten land in our hearts. Now, remember who's writing this. King David. He was the ruler of an entire kingdom. He was kind of a big deal. In fact, his words weren't just words. His words were kind of the law of the land. And so this king and all of his power, all of his wealth, all of his riches, this king is coming to God and he's begging, he's pleading God to help him. He's pleading for God to to look at his heart. He's praying that God would help him with his words. Notice, he's not asking God to be his chief speechwriter. He's asking God to be his chief heart writer. Look what he says next. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. What do you think of when you hear the word meditation? You think of a guy in a toga doing some yoga? Is that the idea that you have when you hear the word meditation? I'm not talking about, you know, like a, a trendy, you know, hot yoga exercise class. You know, I'm talking about a guy in a really big diaper, you know, kind of sitting crisscross applesauce and, you know, he's holding his fingers up like he's drinking, you know, hot tea pinky style and, and he's humming and he's chanting. Is that the idea you have when you think of meditation? Well, that's not what David's talking about. It's a different kind of meditation here. There is a kind of, of mystical, ancient, eastern way of thinking of meditation where you're, you're just supposed to, to kind of sit there and, and just, just empty your heart and your mind out so that the, the winds of good vibrations can just blow through and, and help you out. That's not really the idea here. David's not talking about emptying your mind and emptying your heart. He's talking about filling your mind and, and filling your heart. He's not saying that he wants to sit all day and all night crisscross applesauce trying to make his mind and heart clear. He's saying that he wants his mind and his heart to be soaking all day and all night in that which is good and holy and true. See, David's idea of meditation is more the the word that we would use, marinating. He's he's wanting to marinate on God's truth. This this meditation, it's it's not yoga, it's Yahweh. This is what David is pushing us toward. What does that mean? Well, the word here for meditation means inward utterance. In other words, it it means kind of like talking to yourself. So so David's idea of meditation is kind of talking to yourself. Well, talking to yourself about what? Well, not pep talks, you know, to build your self-esteem. That's not the idea. He's not telling you to talk to yourself through the, the seven or the 12 or the nine you know, recovery steps and just keep repeating them over and over again. He's, he's not talking about humming or, or chanting or trying to empty out your mind. He's not talking about word, wordless meditation. He's talking about worded meditation. He's talking about the, the word of God, the holy God-esteemed truth. He's talking about having the kind of history about God and the the kind of hope that only comes through God. And he's talking about filling your mind with those things. The psalmist in Psalm 119, so many different things. I just pulled out a few that he talks about in terms of meditating. Listen to these. Psalm 119, verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I will meditate on your wonders. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. 
and I will meditate on your statutes. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your testimonies are my meditation. And then this one. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. I mean, that's classic right there. The psalmist is saying, when I can't sleep at night, I love meditating on your word, Lord. I love your ways. I love your precepts. I love your statutes, your commandments. I love them, God. Why? Why Why would he pray in such a way? Why would he put these things into these words? Here's why. He knew that the very best marinade for his heart was the truth about God. He knew that there was nothing else that he could get in his heart that would be of the value that this would be. He knew that the flavor of his life would change and be good and right if he could meditate and he could marinate on who God is and what God does and how God works. See, here's the thing. Meditating like that means that your wife and your husband and your kids and your friends and your children and your parents and your church member, fellow church members, the people in the community, the person on the uttermost part of the earth that you may never see, even that person, when we are meditating and marinating on who God is, they have a shot at getting the glory and the grace and the mercy of God through our lives. In other words, the more we have of God in our heart, the more he comes out. Chuck Kelly, I heard years ago speaking, said, if Jesus is on your mind and Jesus is on your heart, he will be coming out of your mouth. Yeah, I know, I just stepped on all of our toes, right? Because how many times have we talked about Jesus? How much has Jesus been on our minds and our hearts even just this week? What's that catchy phrase, garbage in and garbage out? You know, the the more we put into our minds, that is what comes out. The more we put into our hearts, that is what comes out. For years, I have heard folks talk to me about the importance of God's Word, and yet, at the same time, we don't really see it in our lives as much. Let me just hurt our feelings a little bit. If the only time you meditate on the Word of God is the sermon on Sunday morning, then your life is full of garbage. No, tell me how you really feel, Dal. Come on. It's true, though. If the only time that you meditate on God's Word is in this moment here, your life's full of garbage. Because that means if you're not meditating on God's Word more than just here, then you're not getting what you need the most and what everybody around you needs the most. And that is the glory and the truth and the grace of God. For years, people will say to me, boy, what, what in the world's happening in our country? And our nation's just going to, to hell in a handbasket. What's happening here? What's going on with our culture? It's full of darkness and sin and immorality. I can't believe what our country has come to. Let me just give you two reasons. There's more. But let me just give you two reasons why we should in no way be surprised. And the first is this. Jesus and Paul and Peter and Elijah and Solomon and almost every other single person in the Bible said that there will always be evil and there will always be immorality. There will always be sin. There will always be darkness. 
For more than 4,000 years, the enemy has been prowling around like a lion seeking to devour, seeking to create darkness, seeking to take people's lives. And he will keep doing it until Christ returns. And then he'll never do it again. Every generation has been immoral. Every generation has been evil. Every generation has been sinful. Do not fool yourself. Sin has always been here. It may feel darker now because this is when we live. But the generations have always been sinful and the enemy is always at work. That sounds discouraging. The second reason will be even more discouraging. When we look at our culture, when we look at the sin and immorality, we should be quick to remember to look at the mirror. George Gallup and Jim Costelli, researchers in all kinds of ways, said this, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. Look, statistics and and research, they're not divine, they're not holy, they're not inerrant, we're not supposed to worship them, but they can be helpful. So let me just share a few things from from Gallup and Barna and others that do research on these types of things. More than half of all adults cannot name the four Gospels in the Bible. Some Christians can't name more than two or three of the twelve disciples. 60% of Americans can't name five of the Ten Commandments. George Barna said this, No wonder people break the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't know what they are. There's no connection with these things. Here's some more. 82% of Americans believe that God helps those who help themselves is a true Bible verse. A majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of your family. 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. There you go. 50% of graduating high school seniors, sorry high school seniors, including my daughter, thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Yeah, you know, I mean, sure. A significant number survey believed that the Sermon on the Mount was actually preached by Billy Graham instead of Jesus. Well, of course. You know, we can kind of chuckle at some of those things, and, and maybe we can even raise our eyebrows with a little bit of shock. But before we do, again, we need to remember to be careful with our finger pointing. Al Mohler said this, The larger scandal is biblical ignorance among Christians. Choose whichever statistic or survey you like. The general pattern is the same. America's Christians know less and less about the Bible, and it shows. But so what? What's what's the big deal? What's the big deal if if children and teenagers and young adults and and middle-aged adults and senior adults don't know a whole lot about the Bible? I mean, after all, isn't that the pastor's job? He's the Bible guy. Think of it this way. If Bubba Ray or Bobby Sue or Thurston Howell the 10th or Susan Socialite or whoever it is may be, if they really believe that God helps those who help themselves is a biblical truth, then they do not understand the gospel. And they might be sitting in the pew of a church 
an unsaved, lost church member. See, knowing the Bible is a big deal. If I say the wrong thing about God, I need you to tell me that. Don't trust me just because I'm in the pulpit. I need to get God right. I need to get Jesus right. It needs to be consistent with what's in the Bible. We need God's Word. We need to know God's Word. Al Mohler goes on to say this, Youth ministries are asked to fix problems, provide entertainment, and keep kids busy. How many local church youth programs actually produce substantial Bible knowledge in young people? And then he goes to the pulpit. Preaching has taken a backseat to other concerns in corporate worship. The centrality of biblical preaching to the formation of disciples is lost. And Christian ignorance leads to Christian indolence or laziness and worse. What could be worse? Here's what's worse. What's worse is the reality that there are churches just like Holland Avenue that no longer meet in their sanctuary. They have 20 or 30 people meeting in their fellowship halls. What's worse is churches completely closing down because they're just done with the gospel. They're done doing ministry. What's worse is a church that stays open but doesn't have Jesus and doesn't preach the gospel and doesn't live out the gospel. See, the, the worst part would be not just laziness, it would be that there is just no proclamation or witness of Jesus from the church. Muller goes on to say this. This really is our problem, and it is up to this generation of Christians to reverse course. Recovery starts at home. Well, that, that's got to be a misprint, right? <laughs> that's not right. Surely it starts at the church, right? We need newer, cooler churches. We, we need bigger buildings and more gyms and more activities and more programs. That, that, that's got to be a misprint. This can't be right, is it? It is right, at least according to the whole of the Bible. The recovery starts at home. Muller goes on. Parents cannot franchise their responsibility to the congregation. Children must see their Christian parents as teachers and fellow students of God's Dads, you are a pastor. What kind of pastor are you being to your family? Moms, you're you're a pastor. What kind of pastor are you being to your family? Where is the, the Christian influence in the home? I have two parents who made sure that I understood what the gospel was and and what it meant to be a part of the church. And my mom would sit every morning and quote scripture to me and and funny old wives' tales that I bring up to her every now and then too. But, But I remember these things about God that I heard over and over and over again. And then I had a Jane Faircloth and then I had a Randy Moorhead and and then I had a a Tom Bodie and on and on and on and a Randy Cooper and an Annie Gethart. I had people who were not pastors, but they loved Jesus. And they would walk by me in the hallway and they'd say, hey, Dal, how are you doing? When I was five and when I was 15, they were just people in the church that took interest in my life because they wanted me to know Jesus. If you're not doing that, start today. Make a friend with a teenager. Make a friend with a child. Go out of your way to say, hey, meet somebody new. 
But parents, remember that the recovery of God's word, it starts at home. Because we can do tons of great stuff at this church, but if it never gets back to your house, then there's, there's a completely different message that's being sent. Let's, let's don't send that message. Let's be good Jesus, God-honoring parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and neighbors. And when we look at our culture, when we look at our family, when we look at the community, there should be a question that we're asking ourselves. When we look at our church, there's a question we should be asking ourselves. And here's the question. How am I talking to myself? Don't forget what I just said. When we look at the culture, we should ask, how am I talking to myself? Am I praying like David prayed? By the conduct of my life, would my wife or my husband or my friends or my kids or my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my neighbors, the folks at church, the lady in the line at the store, would they say that they could see in me that I'm praying the way that David prayed? But here's the thing. The reality is whether or not we really get into God's word, whether we commit ourselves to God's word and people begin to see it, their opinion actually is not the most important opinion. Look what David says next. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. See, we all have somebody we want to please. Might be a parent, a grandparent, might be a teacher, a boss, somebody. We want somebody to accept our work. We want somebody to be proud of us. And that's not bad. That's, that's not wrong. That's not an evil desire. But it can be a misplaced desire. Remember, Yahweh, not yoga. You know, this, is, this is about God, not primarily about people. I know a man who has been in the restaurant business really since he was a little kid bussing tables in his grandparents' diner probably more than 50 years ago. He's been in Southern Living. He's owned restaurants and sold restaurants and run restaurants. It's all he's ever done. And he told me one time, he said, one of the hardest things you'll ever do in the restaurant business is own a restaurant in a college town near campus. He said, and the reason why is he said, College fads, when it comes to food, change all the time. The, the, the taste of the young people just changes. There's, there's all kinds of change. In other words, it's kind of hard to please the desires that are there. Listen, let me tell you something that I, I think you probably already know. You cannot please perfectly your parents. You cannot perfectly please your wife or your husband. You cannot perfectly please your teacher, your boss. The pastor cannot perfectly please all the church members. And what David is trying to get us to see is to understand that when it comes to our lives, all of us, we're fickle. Every person in this room, I'll raise both of my hands first. Fickle. God's not fickle. It's not who he is. God's not fickle, he's faithful. God is not a fad, he is forever. God does not change, he is perfect, and he is permanent. And so when we begin to strive to please God, guess what happens? Our spouses and our kids and our friends and our students and our teachers, everybody else in our life, they get what they need. But when we strive first and most to please people, we are automatically about to create a mess. Garbage in, garbage out. So how do we know what would be acceptable to God? I'm just kind of a big, big statement, right? 
Well, God, let the words of my mouth and meditation, let it be acceptable to you. How do we know when we're doing something that's acceptable to God? Well, Joshua had to follow Moses. No big deal, right? Easy act to follow. I mean, you know, all you got to do is lead millions of people, part some waters, and, you know, have bread fall from the sky. Sure, no, I can follow Moses, no problem. But God gave Joshua some very helpful instructions for how he needed to run his life. It goes like this, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then here's the kicker. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. See, if we can marinate on these words that God gave to Joshua, if we can learn to cherish God's word, to love God's word, then in all the ways that we need to be, we will prosper, we will be successful, and all the people in our lives will have what they need the most. David was a king. David was a ruler. You're the king and the queen, the prince and the princess of your life. This is the exact same prayer that all of us need to pray. But you may say, I mean, why do I care about God accepting me? Why do I care whether God likes my words or my actions or whatever it may be? Look how David describes God in the last part. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word rock here means a a place to run and hide for safety and protection. It's a a place you can go in the middle of a storm. Anybody having a storm in life right now? Anybody having something going wrong at work? Anybody have a, a problem waiting for you at school tomorrow? Anybody having some health issues, some family issues? Anybody in the middle of a storm? By his very nature, God desires to be your rock. He desires to be your fortress. David knew God as his rock. He knew God as his strong tower. He knew that he could go to God for safety and protection and hope. But then he also describes him as redeemer. The word redeemer here, it means someone who has bought someone out of slavery, bought someone out of bondage, paid the exact price that was necessary for that person to be free. So why should you care about your words and your actions before God? Why should you want for God to like and enjoy and be pleased and accept you? Because Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, purposefully, voluntarily, gave himself up to execution to receive the penalty of your sin. And what does that mean? I love this thought from Stephen Cole. Instead of being the God who accuses and condemns you, he can now be the God who forgives you and welcomes you to take refuge in him. Listen. We live in a world of accusation. We live in a world of condemnation. Again, let me just hurt our feelings. Parents, we accuse and condemn our kids. Kids, you accuse and condemn your parents. We accuse and condemn pastors and politicians and bosses and employees. We accuse teachers and law enforcement officers. We we condemn people every day on social media for not doing what we want them to do. 
We live in a world of accusation. We live in a world of condemnation. And the gospel says no condemnation. I will not accuse you. I will not put you down. I will not push you away. But because of Jesus Christ, God says, now I can say, come. Welcome. Welcome. Come here. There is no condemnation here. No one will give you a hard time. No one will put you down. No one will condemn you. There is only love. There is only grace. There is only mercy. Friends, that is the gospel. And it is great, great, great news. And so I plead with you to come to Jesus. Why? He paid all of it. Everything. Everything owed for your freedom. Jesus has paid it completely. And so therefore, because of that, that's why we should wake up every morning and all day long and go to bed at night and even in the middle of the night when we can't sleep, we should be talking to ourselves. And this is what we should be saying, oh Lord, let the, the words of my mouth, let the meditations of my heart, let them be acceptable to you because you are my rock and you are my redeemer.